Let's open our Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 4. We're almost done with this book. In fact, next week we'll end it. We'll say bon voyage, we might say, to Jonah. But let's begin this morning with um, a word of prayer. Lord, we open this book knowing that it is your word, knowing that this story is a true story because our Lord Jesus spoke of it as such and used it as the example of resurrection. So we approach it, Lord, as the word says, your word in the New Testament says that all of these things were written for our admonition. So you have a message in this book for us. I pray, Lord, that as these books are open, our Bibles are open, that our hearts and lives would be open to those lessons. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a young boy, I struggled with anger. There were times when I lashed out and it was embarrassing. My brother threw me one week through a window at our house, in the front of our house, and so I landed out in the front lawn. We would often have fights like that. So my parents replaced the window, and as soon as they replaced it the following week, I threw him through that window. I remember putting holes in doors with my feet, playing junior kung fu artist out of anger, or digging a trench in the front lawn with my motorcycle tire out of anger. It is especially bad when as a believer, not relegated now to youthful, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, to represent the living God, the loving God, and to betray that by anger. That's bad. Jonah does that in this chapter. I was reading about a college student who needed a couple extra units to complete his schedule, so he needed to find a course to do that. And of all of his options, the course that seemed the best was a course in wildlife zoology. Uh, He had some reservations about the class. He knew it was tough. He knew that the teacher was difficult. But it was really his only option, so he took the class. One week into the course and one chapter into the course, the teacher gives a test to the student body in that class. And the test was a sheet of paper. And on the sheet, uh, there were squares that were drawn And inside each square were carefully drawn pictures of bird legs. Not bodies, not feet, just legs of birds. And the students were told to identify what the bird was on the basis of the legs. Well, this one student didn't have a clue. He was dumbfounded. He had no answers. And he just stared at this test. And the more he looked at it, the angrier and angrier he got. So finally, he was just boiling in anger. And he walks up to the front of the class where the teacher is at her desk, throws the paper down and says, this is the dumbest test I've ever seen. This is the stupidest class I've ever been in. And you're the worst teacher I've ever had. Teacher looked up and said, young man, you just flunked the test. But she noticed that though the paper was there, he hadn't signed his name on the paper. So she said, young man, what is your name? And at that, he just took his pant legs and pulled them up and said, you identify me. I don't recommend this behavior. (laughs) Now, if you were to identify Jonah in a crowd, I bet it would be difficult. I bet if there were a group of people and you were said, identify the man of God, find the prophet of God, the last guy you'd pick is that pouting man in the corner. 
Here is a man of God, a prophet of God, a representative of God, but you'd never know it because he was creepus maximus in this chapter. What is surprising, as you will read in just the few verses that are before us, is what he knows about God. He is an astute theologian. He's got the doctrine of God down pat. What is more surprising is what he does with what he knows. Knowing all this about God, he gets mad at God. And then finally, we'll see that the surprise is quickly dismantled as we understand the real problem with Jonah. Let's look at the first few verses. We need to begin back in chapter 3, verse 10, because it's all based upon that event. Then God saw their works, that is the works of the Ninevites who changed and turned to God, that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Now we read that and go, oh, praise the Lord. You think Jonah would be excited about this? His evangelism worked. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, that's how I think he said it. I don't think it was this little pious, Oh, Lord. He was mad at God. He was torqued. And he prays, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. It might seem that the best way to end the book is chapter 3. Right? That's a happy ending. They all turn to God, the end, the guys in the white hats and white horses, right off into the sunset. It's done. But it's not done. Because now God deals with the very heart of the prophet himself. It is askew. It is off base from his creator. And you got to admit, looking at verse 1, that's got to be the most unusual emotion for any successful evangelist. I mean, let's say you were a missionary to a foreign mission field and you walk through town the first day and you share the gospel with a few people and every one of them instantly, dramatically turns to God. And thousands and thousands of people give their lives to Christ because of your witness. If you were to tell us back home, we would applaud, Right? This guy has his head in his hands and goes, this is horrible, man. I preached the gospel and it worked. (laughs) This is like post-evangelistic stress syndrome or something. He is so angry at God. In fact, he says, just kill me, God. Take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Now, just before we get right into this, This little story is one of the most encouraging stories at the same time. It shows us that the Bible never hides the flaws of even its prophets, its heroes. You might think that a book about God's people would embellish the story a little bit and hold them high on a pedestal, when in fact, you want to see a prophet of God? Look at this one. The reason I say this is encouraging is because it shows us that God can use anybody, even dorks. And I personally take courage from that. God can use anyone. He uses Jonah. 
There's a few things I want us to notice this morning. Jonah's doctrine about God in the second verse, this is what he knows God to be. And then uh, secondly, his difficulty with God based upon that truth, his attitude. And then finally, the real issue, his dethroning of God. Look at verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know. Now, here's his statement of theology. This is what he knows about God. I know that you are a gracious, merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. It's pretty obvious that this prophet has a clear grasp on the character of God. This is what he knows his God to be like. Now, what I think Jonah is doing is giving us a free rendering, although almost a direct quotation, from Exodus chapter 34. He must have had that in mind at least. And Exodus 34 is when God introduces himself to Moses formally. And God says to Moses that he was compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Jonah knows that about God. He quotes that to God. This is what I know you are like, which is very insightful. It tells us not only a lot about God, but a lot about Jonah because of his attitude. The tragedy of Christianity is there are many with a right theology of God, but at the same time they have a wrong practice. If you were to tell them about the character and nature, I know that, I know that, I know that. And though they have all the right stuff stuffed up in their brains, it never makes it south to their hearts. never goes any further than that. That's the tragedy of Christianity. Let's find out first what Jonah knows his God to be like. He says, first of all, that I know that you are gracious. Often you find this word translated compassionate. Now, again, he says this in an angry tone. I know that you're gracious. You're compassionate. The word gracious is interesting in its history. It is thought to be linked with another Hebrew word, rehem, which literally means the womb of a woman, the womb of a mother. And the term came to mean literally the compassion and love of a mother to her child. That's what God is like. God is tender as a mother would be tender to her own child. So God isn't looking for faults in you. God is tender-hearted toward his people. He is gracious. In the New Testament, grace is one of the epic words used over and over again by Paul. Saved by grace, kept by grace. Now, most of you know that the, the description of grace is unmerited favor. That is, favor is shown to people who don't deserve it. Undeserved favor. We don't deserve it. God gives it anyway. It's a free gift. Now, this is foreign to us because we've been raised in this culture to believe there's no such thing as a free lunch. It says it's free, but there's got to be strings attached. We learn that from our youth. We get the cereal box that says, free gift. And we dig a little bit deeper and we find that we have to send five box tops to get that free gift. So we have to spend more money, five times the amount on the original cereal box, and send those box tops in. Then we get our free gift. There's strings attached. With God, there are no strings attached. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's freely bestowed. We can never earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. We don't have to send God five box tops of anything. 
Man's life is broken. It needs mending. God has the glue. It's called grace. He's gracious. Not only are we saved by grace, but we stand in God's graciousness. In other words, we just don't get in the door of the kingdom because of God's unmerited favor. We live in that grace, do we not? We still don't deserve anything God has done for us. And so the writer of Romans says we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever feel unworthy as a believer? I I can tell just by some nods and some smiles that that hits home. That many times you and your experience in relating to God, you feel so unworthy of God's love for you. You know what? You are unworthy. You are utterly unworthy. And so am I. And that's the whole point of grace. It is bestowed to those who don't deserve it. That's the meaning of it. God is gracious. There was an influential Christian. He was a member of his church. He was not only a member, but he was very uh, active in leadership of his church. He backslid and ended up in prison for seven years. Did a lot of bad stuff. While he was in prison feeling completely dejected, no hope, a chaplain faithfully visited him every week to restore him. To restore his faith, to restore him back to usefulness. So that in the flyleaf of that prisoner's Bible, he wrote these words. The soul that comes to Jesus through failure, shame, or pain by his wondrous love and mercy may soar as high again. That's grace. God, this is what I know you are like. You are gracious. The second word that Jonah knows about God and uses to describe him is he is merciful. Now, a lot of times we get those confused. Grace, mercy, what's the difference? Big difference. Grace reflects the character of the giver. Mercy reflects the character of the recipient. It is a word that describes the love of a superior for an inferior. And that's why the Bible often translates it pity. God pities people. I think you know this to be true. There are some people who mess their lives up so bad, it's pitiful. And when we see them, the reaction is, oh, that poor creature. God takes pity on people. In other words, God doesn't just love good people, people that have it all together. God isn't attracted by strength as much as by weakness. So God doesn't love good people, only God loves people who make messes out of their lives. And maybe you would look at your life and say, boy, I've made a mess out of it. There's a mess in my marriage. There's a mess in my business. There's a mess in all these relationships. My whole life's a mess. You're in the right spot to receive God's mercy. And you might say, oh, but you don't know what I've done. I feel so unworthy, so bad. I I shouldn't even come to church. I can't even pray. Man, you don't get it, do you? That's the whole concept of God's pity, God's mercy, that love. Matthew noticed that Jesus was like this. When Jesus saw crowds of people, in Matthew's Gospel, the ninth chapter, this is what he described. He felt great pity for the crowds that came because their problems were so great and they didn't know where to go for help. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Some of us this morning need to realize that. We focus so much on our faults and our failures rather than God's mercy. And again, I think part of this is conditioning. We've grown up hearing messages perhaps from parents or Sunday school teachers. You better watch out because God is watching you. You can't go anywhere. God is watching you as if that's bad. 
Well, you're right. God is watching you. But the reason God is watching you is because you're the object of God's love. Or to put it another way, God is watching you because, frankly, God can't take his eyes off you. You're the object of his love, his affection. He's gracious. He's merciful. The third characteristic Jonah knows is that God is patient. Or as he puts it, I know that you're slow to anger. This coming from Jonah. Mr. Anger. I'm so angry that you're not angry. Slow to anger. Often translated in the Old Testament, long-suffering. That means God will put up with a lot. Literally, the word long-suffering or slow to anger, literally, is having a long nose. Let me tell you how that word came about. When a person gets angry, his face gets red, flush. He burns. Nose turns red. The concept is the longer the nose you have, it takes a lot longer for it to burn, for the blood to get there. So in its origin, this idea of slow to anger was called of a long nose. The idea then is God doesn't have a bad temper. God doesn't fly off the handle. It's not like God has good days and bad days, and this is not a good day. God is patient. Which means that when God does get angry, and there is a time when the Bible says God is angry, you really have to have blown it for him to express that emotion. Because Jonah knows that God is slow to anger. Next on the list, God is loving. In the words of Jonah, you are abundant in loving kindness. It's a great word. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's so often used by David and other Old Testament writers. It means steadfast, constant, loyal love. Love that doesn't go up and down, doesn't fluctuate. It stays the same. It means that you can never make God love you any more than he does right now. You can't influence his love. You can't say, well, God, I passed out tracts yesterday and I read five chapters of the Bible. Well, that's good. Don't stop doing that. But it doesn't mean God goes, oh, well, no, I love you more now. So you can't influence God's love so that he could love you more. You can't influence his love so that he would love you less. Yet, I have seen an attitude reflected by some of God's people. A superstitious attitude. As if every bad thing that happens is a judgment of God. You ever met people like that? Something bad happens. What did they do wrong? I burned the chicken. This is God's judgment. Why did I get in a wreck yesterday? Probably because I didn't read the Bible last week. God's man. Perish the thought. God is constant in his love. A loyal love. But can you imagine if God loved us any other way? Can you imagine how precarious would the relationship be if God loved us like siblings love each other? If God loved us like husbands and wives love each other. No, it's a commitment, loyal, steadfast, loving kindness. The last thing in Jonah's theology book is that God is forgiving. In his own words, who relents from doing harm, which is exactly what God has done. Back in chapter 3, verse 10, God saw their works that they turned, so God relented from the harm that he was going to do. This means that God will accept anyone who will admit they are a sinner and decides to turn from it. God will relent. God is a big eraser. He doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't have his arms folded, brow furrowed, going, no, I won't talk to you right now. I just want to seethe my anger. 
God will not hold a grudge, nor will God treat you as if you sinned when you come to him and admit it like the Ninevites did and turn from it. Then God, you are justified, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says. God justifies you. He treats you as if you never sinned. Or as Corey ten Boom once said, when God buries our sins in the deepest sea, he posts a sign which reads, no fishing allowed. It's over with. It's done. Don't dig it up anymore. You don't have to remind God, oh, but God, I'm so unworthy. When I was 12, I stole the candy bar. When I was 13, I kicked the door in. It's done. You ask him to forgive you, forget about it. He does. So this is Jonah's theology. It's pretty right on. He had memorized scripture. He knows all the right things about God. He's very accurate. All goes to show you, you can have all the right answers and flunk the test. Maybe not in college, but here you can. You can know all the right stuff, but there is not a corresponding lifestyle. This is now where we get into the second point, Jonah's difficulty with God. Because knowing all this, and I draw your attention back to verse 1. That's how God acted. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Now, the word but is important. It is that little hinge in meaning of these whole chapters. Here's God's love. Here's God's graciousness. He's slow to anger. He's forgiving. But it displeased Jonah. Can you see the difference between the character of God and the character of Jonah? God is forgiving. Jonah is not. God is slow to anger. Jonah is quick to anger. God is merciful. Jonah is mafia. He, He wants these guys dead. He has difficulty with this. And by the way, when it says that it displeased Jonah, you might get the example that he was just sort of, or the idea that he was put off a little bit, agitated. When it says he got angry, it means he fell into a rage, like the kid with the paper who slammed it down on the teacher's desk. I am mad at you, God. Now, here's the paradox. The paradox is that you've got a man of God, a prophet of God, a supposed representative of God, who not only does he not represent God, but he's mad at the very character of God for being what he knows him to be. We need to stop and ask ourselves from time to time, here's a good time to do it. I'm a Christian. I post the sign in my life. I'm a follower of Christ. How much do I resemble him? How much do I resemble the character and the nature of the living God? You know, because I am my father's son, there are certain characteristics he's passed down to me, like it or not. My dad was tall. I'm six foot five. That's in the genetic structure. There are certain patterns of behavior and thinking that I emulated consciously or subconsciously from my father. Like father, like son in very many ways. Spiritually, it ought to be the same. Like father, like child. Paul says in Ephesians 5, to us, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Like father, like child. God is saying, this is my nature, my character. There needs to be a family resemblance. And yet we all know so often, there is not. There is the theology. And we concentrate on having the right theology, which is good, but it ain't enough. Pardon the poor English. You can know all the right facts about the character and nature of God and yet not reflect it. Example. It is thought that the healthiest place on planet Earth is the South Pole. For all of you health nuts, you're looking for a healthy place to go? South Pole. The reason is there is no pollution, no dust, no people. It is one of the few places in the world where you would never be bombarded with germs 
There's no chance for them to survive. It's too cold, and there's nothing really living down there for them to feed on. Not only that, but the winds that start at the South Pole blow northward, carrying all the contaminants out of the area. So it's one of the healthiest places you could ever live. Well, why then do not people flock there? Because it's too cold, right? On a good day, it's 100 degrees below zero. So it might be healthy, but no thanks, it's too cold. There are people like that. They quote scripture, they know truth. Error could never live around them. They can spot a false prophet a mile away. They're apologetically inclined, but spiritually their temperature is sub-zero. No love, no forgiveness, no long-suffering, not reflecting the character of God. Cold, that's Jonah. Listen to his description of God. I know you're merciful, right? Long-suffering, right? Slow to anger. And he's mad at that. This warm, tender character of God, but a cold, sub-zero prophet of God. Why? We are compelled to ask that. Why? Two reasons. First of all, mistaken expectations. Jonah had mistaken expectations of God. Remember, Jonah didn't want the job, right? He ran, fled to Tarshish. God got his attention. He did a couple days of whale time. And post-whale, post-vomit, he goes to Nineveh. He does it. And when he comes to Nineveh, he preaches a message of judgment. And he probably loved it. Forty days and you are dead. Because he hated them. Jonah did what God wanted him to do. The problem is God didn't do what Jonah wanted him to do. God didn't do for Jonah what Jonah expected God to do. What did Jonah expect? Expected a barbecue. He thought he was going to stay east of the city and look down and see charbroiled Ninevites. In his book, the only good Ninevite was a dead one. And he expected God to do something in judging their sin. And God didn't. God relents because that's God's character and nature. So he had an expectation and God did not perform. Dr. William Galen in his book called Feelings Are Vital Signs said, quote, Resentment often arises when we believe we are not getting what is due us from another person. We feel unfairly cheated or betrayed. And we can do that in our relationship with God. I call this biblical thumb-sucking. We pout. We're angry. God didn't do what I thought God would do for me. I'm going to take my pulpit and go home. I think a lot of us struggle with this. An example, our children don't turn out like we thought. You know, we trusted them to the Lord. We trained them up in the way they should go. God, why didn't you do something about that? Or our health isn't what we always thought it would be. Something has happened. Our job isn't as satisfying as we prayed for. Our marriage isn't what we thought it would be like. So we get angry at God. I go, I quit Christianity. There's another problem with Jonah. Not only mistaken expectations, misplaced anger. Look at verse 4. God, in his counseling session, says, Is it right for you to be angry? It's interesting. It's in the form of a question. It's not, You shouldn't be angry, man. He asks him to reflect. Hey, is this right behavior? Is it right for you to be angry? He'll ask him that question twice before the end of the chapter. Jonah is mad. He is angry. He is mad at the Ninevites, wants him killed. He's mad at God because he wants God to kill him. God hasn't. This is misplaced anger. You shouldn't be mad at the Ninevites. What caused them to be so wicked? Sin caused them to be wicked. Satan did. 
Why not be mad at sin? Why not be angry and sin not? Don't be angry at the people as much as they're deceived by the enemy. Misplaced anger. Jonah is a classic example of a bigot. He is the Archie Bunker of the Old Testament. He has no tolerance at all for these Ninevites. They are not Jews. Historically, they persecuted the Jewish nation. They are idolaters. They worship false gods. I don't care if they turn sackcloth and ashes. Get rid of them. He's a bigot. And the lesson for us is that of spiritual bigotry. I think the church of Jesus Christ has people who are spiritually prejudiced against others. It can be shown by people who are interested, more interested in making members of their own group rather than expanding the kingdom of God. Well, do they come to our church? Have they been baptized by our elders? Does it matter if they belong to Christ? Sometimes, rather than becoming fishers of men, we become keepers of the aquarium. Hey, keep this bowl looking good. Make sure that our bowl is cool and up to snuff. You know the disciples were like this? Gospel of Luke chapter 9. The disciples, the followers of Christ, come to Jesus. This is what they said. Lord, we found a guy casting demons out in your name. And we told him to stop. Because he's not following with us. Jesus rebukes them. Now that's tragic. Here's a guy tormented by the devil. They want to let them continue to be tormented by the devil and tell the guy, don't cast demons out because you're not of us. You're not in our group. So they would be willing to let people suffer torment rather than be ministered to by somebody else. One observer noted that the church is so often like Noah's Ark. Were it not for the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stench on the inside. So often that is true. Misplaced anger, I'm mad at them, I'm mad at God. Prejudice, bigotry. Now, that's surprising, right? Here's a guy who knew God, knew the scripture, God, you're gracious, loving, merciful, etc. And I'm really mad at you, frankly. And so we ask a little deeper question. What's the core issue here, Jonah? It's more than just misplaced expectation, misplaced anger. What's the real core issue? The real core issue is found in the personal pronouns Jonah uses in his prayer. Look at it. Verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious, merciful, so to anger, of unloving kindness, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die, or to die than to live. I did a count. In the very first sentence of that prayer, he uses the personal pronoun I four times. Second sentence, he uses me twice and my once. In the whole prayer, he uses you to God once. See where the balance is? It's all on, what about me? What about my needs, God? The problem was Jonah. Now, look in verse 2 and 3. He uses the word Lord. Did he treat him as Lord? Oh, no, no, no. Jonah was Lord in Jonah's life. Me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. You say, no, wait a minute, don't be so harsh on Jonah, this poor little prophet, this pouting prophet, this little brat prophet. Don't be so hard on him. I mean, read chapter 2, Skip. It's a beautiful prayer of repentance, certainly. Under the circumstances, he's about to become a Jonah burger for a whale. I contend that he lapsed into this attitude of humility and repentance, but his general M.O. in life was not that. 
And it's provable by looking after the event of chapter 4. I'm mad you didn't kill him. Boy, he didn't learn his lesson. Where's his humility here? Where's his repentance here? It's non-existence. There's an interesting problem in the Spanish language. It is the word Lord. In Spanish, it is Señor. And when you talk about God or the Lord, it's El Señor. What's interesting is that's the same word for Mr. Señor Jones, Señor Smith, Señor Jesus. Same word. Now, it sounds like you're saying Mr. Jones, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jesus. Although the designation is Lord. The point is, in the Spanish language, linguistically, they've lost the concept of lordship. We have made the same mistake in English. Though we have two separate words, Mr. and Lord, we interchange them. We treat God as if he's a mister. We'll say Lord, but we will not obey him as Lord. We will not treat him as Lord. It is only lip service. Jonah lived in the realm of contradiction. What Jonah said versus how Jonah lived. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, I want, I want, I want, I'll do. Me, 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 my, my, my. I think Peter did this. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's on a rooftop. He sees a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with insects, four-footed beasts, non-kosher food, and God commands him in the vision, Peter, get up and eat these things. And Peter, very humble and obedient, says, Not so, Lord. That is a perfect contradiction. Not so, Lord. It's an impossible statement. You can't say, Not so, Lord. You could say, Not so, if it's a friend, not so, if it's a peer, not so, if it's a subordinate. But you can't say, Not so, if he's your Lord. If he's your Lord, you say, Yes, sir. Right away, Lord. You are the master. It means absolute authority. How can you say no to him? Not so, Lord. Maybe you have the same problem as Jonah. Maybe you've dethroned God. Or maybe you never got off the throne yourself to begin with. You're firmly planted as the king or queen of your own life. I'm here. I'm in charge. Okay, I need a little God. I'll come to church on Sunday once in a while. He's not Lord. He wasn't in Jonah's life. There is a difference. When he is the Lord, then your concern is his expectations of you. What's his will? What's his desire? What does he want from me? When he's not Lord, but you're Lord, you've got some expectations of him. And frankly, if he doesn't pull through at your timetable, you're going to be mad at him. And eventually you will be. As long as he's not Lord, you're going to have expectations that you won't be satisfied because they're not fulfilled up to your specifications, and you'll be angry at God. Let me close with something in the Gospel of Luke. We'll close with this text. Turn over to Luke chapter 17. It is key to this. There's three, four sentences, four verses from our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 17 I'd like to close with. Luke 17, verse 7. And which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper. Gird yourself, serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Now, if this is a little foreign to you, because we don't have master and slave relationship anymore, if you've ever done any time in the military, you get a handle on this meaning. If you have a superior officer that gives you an order, he doesn't have to negotiate with you. Say, well, listen, 
I'll treat you really nice if you do this for me. Well, I don't want to do it right now. Okay, well, whenever you get a chance. The officer says, do this. You say, yes, sir. And it's understood. Look at the last verse, verse 10. So likewise, you, when you have done all the things which you are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Until that happens, until he is Lord on the throne of your life, no matter how much Bible truth or how many Sunday sermons you hear, it will never penetrate. You're just doing time. And I meet people all the time who come to church, listen to the truth, but they don't live in the realm of God's character, love, mercy, long-suffering, forgiveness, etc. Because he's not Lord. When you come to Christ, it's as if God hangs a sign on your life that says, under new management. You don't own, you're, you're his. You're not your own. You've been bought with the price. Heard of a college guy who walked into a photo studio with a picture of his girlfriend, gave it to the owner of the shop and said, make me a couple duplicates. To do that, he had to take the frame off, the glass off, and get to the photograph itself. The owner of the Photoshop noticed on the back of this picture of this beautiful young lady were some words written that read, My dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more each day. I'll love you forever and ever. I'm yours for all eternity. Signed, Diane. P.S. If we ever break up, I want this picture back. (laughs) Do you have a P.S. attached to your relationship with Christ? God, I'll follow you as long as, but whenever this happens, then I'm leaving. You can't break up with God. When you come to him, you're a lifer. You follow him. He's your Lord, your master. He'll forgive you of all your sins and receive you. But it's a lifetime commitment. Or as the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed at the hand of the Nazis for his faith, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's what you're called to do, die to yourself, to sitting on the throne, to your agenda, and make him the Lord. That's the calling of God. Jonah needed to learn that. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Pouting little prophet, representative of God. How gracious God is, and you will see God's grace extended to him in the next few verses next time we meet. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to live with a P.S. when we make a commitment to you. Some of us, Lord, have had expectations of you. We wanted you to dance to our tune, march to our drumbeat. And we've gotten angry at you because we thought you didn't do that. And we have, some of us, been angry at all the wrong people. When in reality, the thing that needs to happen is that we would climb off the throne of our lives, let you occupy it, submit to you as Lord. Lord, on one hand, we admire the sheer honesty of Jonah, who didn't hide anything from you. And we thank you for letting us see that because it reflects some of our attitudes. Lord, right now we want to make a commitment in a fresh way to take the P.S. off of that sentence and say we are yours, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.